Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of April 2nd, 2021. I'm Charles Hain, writer for No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And filmmaker Kath Tolentino. Hello. This week we are talking about Ray Fisher's continued demands for Warner Brothers to release the investigation around Justice League. We are going to be talking about personality types for directing. And if you have to be a big, spirited extrovert to be a director, we've got two bits of tech news that I think are good this week. All that and a a sort of tech nerdy Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. So the first thing, Ray Fisher. So we, you know, the Snyder Cut has been much discussed, but another part of the Justice League drama is that Ray Fisher has accused Joss Whedon of inappropriate behavior, um, not sexual in nature, I don't believe, but just like being a total screaming asshole to everyone when he took over for Zack Snyder on the original Justice League and um, has been very public about it and has demanded an investigation. Warners did an investigation, said we found that there was no racism involved, but has not released the investigation's results. So, and so Ray Fisher has been very vocal this week of saying, just release the investigation. Like, let us make our decision about it, but release the investigation about how we enacted on the reshoots, what the work environment was like, how the decisions were made uh, in the edit room that minimized my part and um, removing all black and POC from the movie, release the report that goes into all that. This is like a... It is a it's news in wor- movie world, so we got to talk about it. It is a it's such a complicated issue because on one level, like you know, I work in academics. We have these things called Title IX investigations, which is where someone is accused of sex discrimination. It might be like sexual contact in nature, or they might just be misogynistic. But like those reports are anonymous, and the final results of the report are anonymous. And they're anonymous for a lot of reasons. They're anonymous to like protect everyone involved, including the victims. And it's really frustrating sometimes because like, you know, you will hear about a professor being fired and all you will hear is title nine and that's it. And no one who knows anything is allowed to talk about it. And that is a good thing and a bad thing. We don't know anything about what's in this report. I understand why Ray Fisher wants the report out. I get that. That makes sense to me. And this isn't an academic environment. This is a professional environment, which should have different goals. Like these are all working adults. These are all people working in a multi-million dollar production. I get why he wants the results of the report known. Also, because like, why would anyone ever trust a summary of the report? Like that came up all the time in the Trump era, right? Where like Robert Barr would be like, well, my summary of the report is we did nothing wrong. And then like four months later, the actual report comes out and it's like, actually there are a bunch of criminal nut jobs. And Robert, you know, like summarizing a report is always dangerous. But the other flip side of this is like, this is a ballsy move that I have a lot of respect for because, you know, I've been doing this interview process where I've talked to a lot of like people in the industry from the sixties and seventies and people burn bridges and like, I'm glad that Ray Fisher is out there be willing to be like, fuck it. I don't care. This was some bullshit. And I don't care if this hurts my job prospects in the future. And I have a lot of respect for that. And I've interviewed a lot of like old Hollywood folks from the sixties and seventies who were like, absolutely. It was harder to get movies made because of battles I fought with the studio. And I'm glad I did it anyway. 
And I don't know much about uh, his acting work outside of this. He was in the third season of True Detective. You know, hopefully this does not affect his career, but I respect the fact that he doesn't seem to give a shit if it respects, if it affects his career. He just wants the truth to come out. And I think that's baller as fuck. I actually just had a question because I'm a little less familiar with this story. It, does he have access to see the report himself? Doesn't seem to be the case. What he said was prior to Justice League reshoots, racially discriminatory conversations were had on multiple occasions by Warner Brothers. He calls out some names. He says he wasn't aware until the summer of 2020 who was in the meetings, but he would have addressed in real time had he. The quote that he put out there that is the quote, the, the quote of the thing is studio executive Jeff Johns saying, we can't have an angry black man at the center of this movie. And then the executives using their power to reduce and remove all black people from the movie. The rest of it sort of goes on to into some of the switching from Snyder to uh, Joss Whedon and just Joss Whedon, who he is in general, not a great guy by any stretch. But I think that the 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 crux of it is that the character of Cyborg that Ray Fisher plays was central to the story. He could have arguably been the protagonist, the heart of the story in the Snyder version and in the process of switching to the Whedon version, the, the theatrical release, he was minimized, eliminated. Um, there's a lot more to it, but that, that there were these conversations about that centering around his being black is the core of what Ray Fisher was talking about. But also that Whedon was a jackass on set. That is also part of it. Um, yes. It reminds me of a recent story that I feel like did not make the headlines that I was very surprised about, which was an actor, Leonard Roberts, who was on the show Heroes way back when and was meant to be a main character of that show. And then over the course of filming the first season was like basically like killed off and like his role was reduced significantly and always people coming to him saying, you know, putting on a good face and giving him all sorts of reasons why. But ultimately he wrote in this article on variety. It was because his white co-star seemed to be very uncomfortable, basically racist um, and didn't want to play opposite him. And it really brings up this question of like how, you know, what's the best way to make real change happen. He wrote this article, Leonard Roberts wrote this article on Variety. I don't feel like anyone was talking about it. And, you know, there's like using your own voice. There's the public putting pressure on these studios to do better. There's these internal reviews that are happening. You know, like what? how do we actually create a better working environment, um, a non-racist, non-misogynistic working environment? You're talking about what comes next or what people can do to create change, which is certainly the ultimate like point of all this and where we should land. But just looking back again at this particular instance, there are a few things that we've talked about on the podcast here, but that are topics just in our in this community and in, in the world at large these days that this brings up. One is, because Charles, you touched on it, the idea of the consequences for what you are willing to say and where you're, what you're willing to, to fight over. There's a couple parallels to Star Wars, also Disney, pro, or sorry, this is not Marvel. This is DC, so it's Warner Brothers. Star Wars is Disney. But anyway, there's a parallel, which is 
that uh, the star, one of the stars of the sequel franchise of Star Wars movies was black and he was upset about the way he felt his character was minimized. Uh, he went public with that and Disney sort of went a different, they, they decided to talk to him about it. Um, I don't know. I, I don't have all the details on where that thread led ultimately, but he was very comfortable being outspoken about, I think that they minimized my character and took away a love story and did X, Y, and Z because I'm black. Um, there was also the issue of, is her name Kelly Marie Tran? The, who was, uh, she, and she starred in one of the Disney movies and then was basically reverted to like a non-role in the Disney Star Wars movies, which was another issue also perhaps about backlash. And then the other thing that I'm bringing up is we've talked extensively about it in weeks prior for those who aren't listening every week about Gina Carano. We were talking about how she was fired from Mandalorian for blah, 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 all the things she shared and then not being appropriate. And we talked about consequences. So this, I just bring it up as a counterpoint because this is an instance where it's very possible that Ray Fisher will suffer some consequences in terms of work because he's outspoken about this. And it's an ex- not, and I'm not saying he should, I don't think he should at all, but he may. And you said, Charles, the idea of being willing to burn bridges to take a stance on something. There is a historic precedent in the industry and everywhere of people saying, this matters to me. And I don't care if it makes it a little harder for me to earn a paycheck doing X job. And when we talk about cancel culture, which is a phrase I don't like to use, and Gina Carano, there's this sense of, well, but it's freedom of speech. She should be able to, well, she, she should be able to say whatever she wants. And she is. And there are consequences. <laughs> and it comes back to this is like Ray Fisher is saying whatever he wants. It is arguably from a different side of the political spectrum than what Gina Carano was talking about. But without getting into the details on that, he will suffer any consequences that come from it as well. Um, and the, and and that's why I, I, I just want to bring that up because this is an industry where you never know who you're going to work with next. You never know what's going to impact your your whatever. And if you're going out on a limb and saying things that may be unpopular but matter to you, then be be bold and be brave and accept that it may mean that people won't work with you. Who knows? I think that there's, I think that's a really interesting point. I think there's a, re, a way of reframing this because it's not necessarily a matter of suffering the consequences. It's a matter of coming out and saying, I refuse to work in an environment that does not see me or respect me. And if I'm going to give my talents and my skill and my labor to this, I want to be in an environment that is inclusive and healthy and respectful of me and my time. And so by you know, putting putting yourself out there and saying, this is what I need and this is what people like me need, essentially you're then laying some groundwork for more people to come out and start saying what they need too. And so it takes a lot of courage. Yeah, I agree. And I'm glad he did it. And, I, and I'm glad John Boyega did it. The way that executives speak behind closed doors about things should not go undiscussed unrevealed, especially if it comes out that it's in any way uh, like of this nature. And similarly, the behavior of Joss Whedon on set and in general and in the past, we should not, we should have absolute zero tolerance for any of that. Uh, I feel very strongly about it. I just think there's no place for it in 
society <laughs> anywhere. Yeah, there's no, there's no, the the excuse of like, well, this that's just the film industry and get used to working with difficult people has been used to excuse like absolutely atrocious behavior for way too long. I mean, I think, you know, we can also put a positive spin on it of like, at a certain point, you just make the decision of like, I don't want to work with assholes. So like, if talking about this costs me working with you, then you're an asshole and I don't want to work with you. So totally. I think that totally. that's like kind of awesome. And I have a lot of respect for it. I also think that, like, I doubt Warners will, will ever release the investigation because even if they read it 15 times and it seems to cover them, there's always a fear when you release anything like that, that there's something you didn't notice in it that will somehow bite you in the ass now or later. So it it's better to just keep it under wraps. Their lawyers are telling them to keep it under wraps. And I'm sure there's reasons to keep it under wraps that, like, might also protect other you know might also be good reasons i don't know what's in it but we have texts we like one of the interesting side effects of the snyder cut getting released is the snyder cut shows you know cyborg having a more pivotal almost protagonist level involvement in the plot and then disappearing in the whedon cut and like that is evidence like there's no court of law <laughs> that adjudicates these th i mean maybe there is maybe there would be a court of law where it's like jurors you have to watch the whedon cut and the snyder cut over the weekend while you're sequestered and we will talk about like maybe maybe that will end up in a court case i don't know that would be um fascinating if it did but like when like editing a movie is an iterative process in which you are constantly you know editing doesn't just happen when you're sitting at the editing machine, staring at the footage. Editing happens, you know, at lunch when you're talking about it or over the weekend or in these meetings or like editing happens when you're on a conference call with executives or network notes. Like that is also part of the edit process. And for a character to go from being prominent in an edit to less prominent in an edit, like, yeah, someone had to physically go in and to media composer and cut those shots. But bigger than that, like, you're always talking about these things. You're always like, I feel like we're leaning too hard on this character. Or I feel like it's dragging in this part. Or I feel like it's like somebody had to say, you know, less cyborg. I feel like it's too cyborg heavy. And like, that's something we need to be conscious of. Like, you know, if like, since they have documented, you know, since he says, I heard an executive say, I don't want an angry black man at the center of my movie. Like that is indicative of some bias. And as we have these editorial conversations, we should be conscious of our biases. That's real. I really don't. I have a lot of respect for actors in that they have to surrender themselves completely and put a lot of trust in these people who are asking them to, you know, bear themselves emotionally and sometimes physically on camera with no sense of like how it's going to turn out in the end. And I think about that, you know, when I've made movies in the past and I've um, included certain scenes or certain characters or cut out certain scenes or certain character, it's, there's so many reasons for doing that. And I do feel for the actors when they see it and they're like, what happened to my favorite scene? And I have to tell them, I'm so sorry for reasons that have nothing to do with you. It's gone. Um, and it can really, I th that's got to be so tough as an actor to put your heart and soul into something and then just have other people, you know, put it on the cutting room floor. This is also the tricky part of like, I love the idea of your, your court of law about the, the two cuts, but there's so, it's so hard to know what the reasoning was. It could, they could claim as, you know, I don't need to explain this, but they could claim like, well, we just 
changed her mind about the performance or about the way the story worked or it wasn't because of you know him being an angry black man or whatever and like that's all you know that we we know what we know because of what we heard from him we'll believe what we all believe but you know one thing that's interesting is that sorry what year did black panther come out cuz i'm kind of curious what the timeline was with some of the other things that are hap- that have happened in the general, like in the space, you know, there's been an expansion and some success in, in actually saying like, why don't we make a superhero who does like, why don't we feature the superhero existed a a superhero who looks a little different than the ones we've been doing over and over and over again for years and see how that goes. And wow, it went really well. Interesting because Ta-Nehisi Coates, I think that's how you pronounce his name, right? He is working on a new Superman movie for Warner Brothers, which is likely to feature a black Superman. And he was pivotal in the creation of the Black Panther story and that or the Black Panther film story that we're familiar with. So there there are these kind of movements in this direction. They only happen if people make a point about when we're still kind of backwards on it. But it's a good sign, I think, that... uh, that there is that kind of attention going forward and that you can do things like say feature, make the whole, just be like, Hey, let's do a Superman. He doesn't have to be a white guy. You know, we can change that. All right. And then the next big story this week is a director named David S. Sandberg, who's directed a lot of great films. If you haven't seen the new Shazam, it is one of my favorite superhero movies. It was really quite solid. And he also makes like a lot of tutorial content might not be the right word for it, but like, you know, he makes videos and stuff for the internet where he shares how he does storytelling. And his newest one is, can you be an introverted director? And, uh, his YouTube channel is, is awesome. Um, we post a lot of it on no film school and write it up, but he's great. And I believe the channel is called just to give him a plug pony smasher. Oh, so follow. Love it. That makes sense. Pony <laughs> smasher. So um, the, and you know, the thing he's talking about in the video and that we then end up talking about in the article is like, there is this concept of like the directorial personality that's like extroverted and dominant and like all tied up in all sorts of, you know, toxic traits and whatnot. He doesn't get into the toxicity, but he does talk about like, if you feel introverted, here are some things you can do. Like he considers himself an introvert and he directs big studio movies that are good. So you can do it. Like there is not one personality that you have to have in order to direct. Now there are things that might be the same way. Like if you're an extrovert, some of the tools of directing are going to be hard for you. Like sitting quietly and watching people for hours at a time to learn about human behavior might be harder for you if you are an extrovert. So like, I do want to like, I feel like whenever this introversion extroversion thing comes up, it's always like lessons to make an introvert more extroverted, but like you don't see enough lists of like extroverts, how to shut up and be quiet more. But like, that's also just as useful. And I say, this as someone who's probably counts as an extrovert that like sitting quietly and observing things is a useful directorial skill that the extroverted director should practice. 
as an introverted director, uh, he talks about like preparing a pitch or a meeting by pitching your family and friends. And frankly, that's good advice for everybody. I remember so clearly the first couple of years out of film school, like anytime any of us would have a pitch the night before we'd get on the phone with each other and pitch to each other and give each other notes and feedback. And like anytime anybody was going into a meeting, we wanted people to feel like they were prepared. And uh, I think that's an amazing piece of advice, whether you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert is to like, you know, you can run through it and give yourself sort of the space to feel comfortable. Cause like even the terms introvert and extrovert are sort of different situations, bring out different things in different people. And like, I've seen people who are like quote unquote introverted, but like when they're uncomfortable with a group of three or four people they feel safe with are like totally telling 50 jokes. So like, I think the trick is making yourself feel confident and prepared to walk into the situation so that you feel like you are putting your best foot forward for a pitch. I totally um, agree with you that the whole introvert extrovert thing and like, I got to say Myers-Briggs in general, like I, it's never resonated with me. I definitely It's feel all eugenics. Like, <laughs> is, it, <laughs> is that, is that fact? <laughs> it's not fact, but that's what, how I think about it. I'm like, does not, does, by the time we're in high school, haven't we all accepted that personality is mutable and when you're in a good mood, you're in one way and you're a bad mood, oh, yeah. you're another way and different people make you act differently and like. Like there's no fixed thing where like it's born and you're like an introvert and have feelings and like that's your whole life. Like I, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I know. Don't even get me started on horoscopes. I can't. But anyway, um, <laughs> I definitely feel like I'm both. But I do think that there's something to be said for, um, you know, it, there's no one right way to be a director. Um, I remember my like the, my first day of film school. Um, one of our professors said, uh, okay, as a director, the most important thing is you need to have an answer to every single question. You need to know what? exactly. Yeah, I know. I was surprised too. I was like- That's insane. I don't think that's true. Um, but he's like, everything from like, what color is the car to where are you going to park the trucks to like, you know, where do you want the actor to stand? Like people are going to be coming to you with questions and you have to have an answer and you have to be authoritative. And I fundamentally disagree with that. And I, as someone who, as someone who thinks that auteur theory is a bunch of bullshit, really filmmaking is a collaborative <laughs> effort. And it's all about, to me, you know, good filmmaking and good like team leadership is really about inviting collaboration and knowing how to help people on your team shine in their own way and creating a space where people can bring ideas. And so there is no one right way to be a director. And however you are as a person, like whatever your gifts are as a human being are going to be your gifts in, in the films that you make as well. Bam. Damn. Yes. I think this is an interesting question and it's one that people grapple with and trying to figure out like personality traits you have that will work well in certain situations or for certain roles. And, you know, being a director is kind of like the thing a lot of people get into making movies. They're like, I want to be a director. One thing we mentioned in how you mentioned the pitch and we mentioned the pitch in the article about it. And there's a lot of stuff about pitching, but I've met extremely successful people in this industry who are very introverted. And I've known some who are very extroverted. And I don't think it makes you necessarily good at pitching or bad. And one way of breaking down the difference between an introvert and an extrovert that I like because it makes sense to me 
and it's not just like who likes being around people and who doesn't. It's it was something where someone said an introvert is somebody who kind of it's taxing for them to be around people, but they can do it, but it it requires them to produce a lot of energy. Whereas an extrovert is somebody who like feeds off of the energy of being around a lot of people and it's not taxing. It's the opposite. And I thought, oh, that that makes sense because it's not that you can't do it. Don't ever let people say like based on your personality or anything, you're going to be good at this or you can do that or you can't do that. I think that's the eugenics part of it, Charles, is that it's like, is it limiting your potential? I think the only like. It's funny the first that when you said Kat the thing about what makes you to be a good director you have to do XYZ and I started thinking like sometimes people will say to be a leader you have to be this way this is how you lead or this is how I remember one job somebody telling me that my flaw was I was too nice and I Story really took that to life. heart <laughs> Story of my life <laughs> Someone told me they told me you're just too nice you got to crack the whip sometimes and I thought about that and I was like no, I don't think so. I think I'd rather be too nice and whatever comes, comes, than be a dick under any circumstance. I don't see the advantage. If you have to live with yourself at the end of the day, you have to go home and be who you are and whatever and, you know, address whatever your the, in role in society. Like the things we do on this earth are so momentary and infinitesimal and unimportant how we behave, like if we're just a decent person or not. Like, again, coming back to Joss Whedon, like be a decent person. Like, I don't I don't care how many movies you made or TV shows. Like, no one's going to remember in 200 years. <laughs> like, no one's going to care about Buffy. But be a nice person. Like, that to me is just like, I don't get why people who get into this industry and this is coming from a guy who didn't have a lot of success in the industry. So, that, you know, you know, maybe listen to Joss Whedon and do be a not nice person. But but if you want to be if you want to approach this in a holistic life way, I just think you can't go wrong being nice to people and you can definitely go wrong. And I think I've seen it a lot. The people who are jerks, they will end up reaping what they've sown. Joss Whedon is just another of many examples. It does come around eventually. You can only maintain that for so long before someone wants to topple you really bad because they have good reason to hate you. Um, the opposite is true if you can always be a nice person. So that's my spiel on it. Like wh whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, just like don't be a jerk. Well, and it it still just keeps going back to like just just don't pretend to be someone else. Just, just be who you are. And like, we have all of these ideas about like what something is supposed to look like. And that's usually like a straight white dude who's over six feet tall is like in charge of things or whatever the fuck. And it's like, you know, I, I honestly, I've worked with genuine assholes in the film industry. I also think I've worked with some people who are pretending to be assholes because they think that's what it, the job requires of them. And I feel like I'm like, why are like, like, they're like, and I'm like, why are you doing this? Because yeah, you've heard. It's like or you've, you've been seen. trained. Yeah. Exactly. It's like hurt people hurt people. It's like you had some boss who was an asshole. And now that you're the boss, you feel like it's your job to do the same in order to get what you want on this, like, you know, hour of episodic reality television. No one will watch again in two years. And it's just <laughs> bizarre. Um, Can I, here's, a, here's something on that note that I've heard. I've, so many people I've interviewed at no film school and other places who work in the industry for years and have successful careers. And one thing you hear a lot 
is that they say you to get jobs and to keep jobs, you need to be somebody people want to be around. And ultimately, if you're not a nice person, it's going to be harder and harder. Your talent or your track record is going to have to outweigh that people might not want to be around you. And it does come around. And I think your point there is just like, you know, if you're if there's no reason to pretend to put on airs to be difficult or come down hard on people, because that that habit that you build will end up biting you or people like maybe they won't want to work for you or maybe they won't give you the best recommendation or like networking is so important. And if you're going to get hired on a show, if you're going to be in a writer's room, if you're going to get picked up on a crew over and over again, people want to have they want they need to want to be around you so so how you behave when things go badly will quickly define that well i just i don't this might be waiting too off topic but i was just i feel like the film industry like we were talking about kind of you know if you get into the wrong pool early on you can get this impression that you have to be an asshole to move forward and then people around you, you'll sort of attract more people like that. And you can kind of, you know, end up wading into this sort of like cesspool of toxicity where everyone around you is operating out of that same mode. And it's tough they too. They call because, them agencies. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough too because I just put this out as a word of warning. Like those of us who do our best to be nice can sometimes end up being stepped on oh, when, yeah. and, when you get in yeah. those situations. Um, yeah, I was just reading, I was just like reading this article about Peter Lenkov, who was the showrunner or is the showrunner for a bunch of CBS shows, um, MacGyver and Hawaii Five-0 and Magnum PI and stuff. And, you know, it's another, it's another Hollywood story about a showrunner that's just like massively abusive to everyone around him and stuff. Um, and, and just, you know, it's tough out there, man. <laughs> it's really tough. There's so many of those. And in many instances, they drive people away and it becomes harder and harder. They may, maybe they make a lot of money for a time, but it becomes harder and harder to, to maintain the work. You might, they might just stop working because people don't want to deal with them anymore. Also, think about how many times we've heard stories about people, and this ties back to the original introvert thing. We've read so many stories of people who had like three or four years in film and then were just treated so terribly. They were like, you know what? Peace. I don't need it. <laughs> yep. I, like, I'm going to go work in any other industry. And and some of that also relates to like, oh, in order to do the thing I want to do, I have to pretend to be what? Like, I have to pretend to be an extrovert if I want to be a director? Like, I just want to tell stories with moving images. Like, why do I have to put on the show in order to do that? Like, I'm not an actor. Like, why can't I just be me and direct a movie? And I think, you know, I wonder a lot about all of the people who've left this industry because of how limited the expectation of what it meant to be in this industry was for so long and how much work we still have to do to change that. Well, there's also like filmmaking the art and then filmmaking the industry, like filmmaking the work. And there are to there's there's so many different ways to make movies and to make movies that are near and dear to you and that that will you know t say what you want them to say whether or not they're accepted by Hollywood is a different question, sadly. 
I have seen some very, what I thought were like extremely talented people who are just like, nah, I don't want to deal with that. And it's a, it's a bummer, but it's also like good for them because, uh, yeah, if you don't have the stomach for it, like, well, I suffer. But like, can't we just try and rebuild the industry from scratch so that it's not so that those people are like, oh, this is industry. Great. I'm super talented and creative and I, and I have a place here. Like, can't we do that? There's billions of dollars around. So can't we just figure it out? I will say, and this article that I was reading about Peter Lankov and the Vanity Fair had this amazing, amazing point that was like, particularly when it comes to like the people who are leading studios or the people who are running shows, so often they are creative people who have no management training, no leadership training, like don't come from that background. And then all of a sudden they're being asked to manage tens or hundreds of millions of dollars and big teams of people and like weekly delivery deadlines and just like massive amounts of stress. And there's no training for that at all. And there's no support, emotional or mental support at all. Interesting. And of course that's going to filter down. And of course that's going to create toxic environments. I feel like every other, you know, I currently work at an ad agency, which has much more of a like corporate kind of model. And we have like weekly check-ins with each other. And we have like, we talk about mental health and we have like, you know, um, like leadership development. I have, um, I meet with my boss once a week to talk about the kinds of goals that I want to set for myself and how I'm feeling and stuff. And like that could totally be replicated in the film industry, but it's not something that people do or seem to know how to do. I feel like there's this like mockery we all have, like as if we're still high school punk rockers that are like corporate world is bullshit and like corporate world is bullshit in many ways. But like, there's also some corporate traditional stuff about like growing careers, being invested in someone's long-term career, like, um, learning how to communicate with teams long-term that are actually like useful things that we should be stealing in the film industry. So useful. And or like any not- industry, like they have, they have actually weather because a corporate, like <laughs> there are so many things that a corporate environment has over a non-corporate environment from just training people, caring about their success, taking like just all of that. Like the idea that it's the drab cubicle life is sort of like office space, uh, fight club era funny, but in practice they've had to hone and sand down and refine what it is and how to build culture and all these things that gig the gig world doesn't have and that we should all strive to emulate and yeah if you're used to working on like there's sets and productions and production offices there's nothing like that um it's way more of a wild wild west in not in a good way <laughs> so, well, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna call myself out as a film professor and say that like you know one of my biggest frustrations at USC was that USC was very much an old school film school that was like we are not gonna like when we talk about the industry we're gonna talk about like when you're when you're dealing with a studio merger and you're like dealing with stock options it was all this like high end level stuff but like no one ever talked about like how you do your taxes as a freelancer or what 1099 means or like what a small production company looks like none of the stuff that was actually relevant to us was ever covered there was one business class in my whole time at USC and it was 
high level, like in 15 years, if you're a studio director, you'll care about this. And it's like, how many of us are going to end up getting there? Like there's more U S senators than there are studio directors. Like give us (laughs) real practical stuff. And I'm actually starting to realize that like, and I've started integrating it this year, but I think we can do more is that like, as a teacher, I've always really covered a lot of that nuts and bolts business stuff. But I also think like collaboration and leadership stuff needs to also like film schools need to teach more than like the three X story structure, but also like what leadership looks like. I got to say, I've said this before and I feel like people can laugh me out of town. But as I was making my thesis film in film school, the best book that I read was um, Harvard Business School's like top five or top 10 articles about leadership. And like more so than any book about story or cinematography, like more so, even more so than like, I would say watching movies, although I'd watched a ton of movies already at that time. But anyway, that book really helped me in terms of just like knowing how to talk to my crew and how to not be an asshole and how to how to make a great movie that everyone could feel. Well, like I have a couple of writing assignments based on this for both of you now. For Charles, we'll do uh, taxes for filmmakers or creatives. Oh, totally. And, we'll uh, do. And business. And for Kath, we'll do leadership. I'm down. Uh, leadership skills on set. Like these are important things that these are 100% what no film school is about. So love it. Awesome. I got to run you guys. I'm sorry. And now we're losing Kat, Kath and moving on to tech news. All right, so we got two tech stories this week. One tech story, I'm just going to do them in whatever order, and hopefully George will have a lot of questions. So first tech story of the week, Sigma has come out with another iteration of their original FP. And if you remember the FP, the FP was a fun little camera that came out two years ago, shoots internal raw, and they've done a refresh two years later, the Sigma FPL. And what's fun about it is it's like the size of a deck of cards, so it's tiny. It is it's getting legitimately small, but it's still got a massive full-frame sensor. It uses the L mount, which is an open lens mount, also shared by Panasonic and Leica. And it shoots RAW, and it can shoot either to ProRes RAW or Blackmagic RAW. And off the top of my head, it's the only camera that will do either. Like, mostly it's either like, we can do Blackmagic RAW, or we can do ProRes RAW. But this one does both, which I like. So it's like all about the open formats. It also does this crazy thing where, like, if you've ever done a multi-camera shoot, You know, usually the first thing you do at the beginning of the day is all the camera people get together, especially if you're like an indie person. What you'll do a lot of times is you'll be like, oh, I own a Sony A7S III or whatever. And you'll call up a bunch of other people who own A7S III's and you all meet together to do the shoot. That's super common. I've been doing that since like the DVX100 days where like five people I knew own DVX100s. And every once in a while we'd book a job where we'd all meet up and shoot multicam. And the first thing you do is you make sure everybody's menus are the same because you don't want like one camera at 24 and one camera at 2398 or one person shooting a Cinetone and the other shooting S-Log or whatever. And the Sigma FP will make a QR code on their little screen on the back that you show to the other cameras. And when the other cameras see that QR code, they will match settings, which is like, that's cool as shit. Every camera should do that shit. And so like, I'm excited about the Sigma FP because I think they're thinking about stuff in a fun way. Like as this, the original FP had it as well, the FPL still does it as a director's finder mode where like it will show you the frame lines of like, oh, you're shooting on an Airy uh, Alexa LF. Here's exactly what the frame lines will be if you put that. That is on cool. Here. It's not as cool. As, I want it to be cooler. The, the director's. <laughs> 
it's this fucking hedonic treadmill. Every time something gets better, we just want more. The director's <laughs> viewfinder is sort of cool, but what it makes me want more. As soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, you know what would be even better is if the camera magically knew what lens I was shooting with, which it could do with QR codes. I could put a QR code sticker on every lens I work with and like then it could see what huh. lens I was mounting. And so it knew the lens I mounted and then it would record that in the metadata of the file. And it, I could make like Artemis style reports where I would have like a whole PDF of like, oh, I shot this on a 35 and this on a 50. There's no metadata right now, which means it just shoots a still photo, but it doesn't shoot a still photo that says what lens and focus I was on. And that's what I really want. I know, I know I'm being ridiculous. I know Stigma gave me this like very cool feature that no one else has. And I'm like, whoa, now that I see that, I want more. It's like basically <laughs> being a toddler that's like, I didn't know chocolate milk was a thing. Can I have chocolate milk for every meal now? And Sigma's like, I should never have shown you chocolate milk. That's what Sigma is thinking right well, now. Well, you say, you say in your headline on the piece you wrote about it, the Sigma FPL is a camera that should influence the market. Is that part of your desire to see people take some of these things farther? Yeah, I in mean- In what sense do you mean? What is the thesis? Can you For can me, you it's like- I want everybody except Sony to use the L mount personally. I can forgive Sony for having E mount because they were so far ahead of everybody else that like, of course, Sony, you get to have E mount. Great. Good for you. You were like six years ahead of everybody else, but like Panasonic, black magic, like red, you guys should all just use L mount. It's the open format and we're filmmakers. We love open formats. That's our thing. PV mount was used. It was invented by Airy, but it was used by Airy and Aton and movie cam. And it was the open format, right? We like open right. format. It's great. Like that's our thing as filmmakers. So that I could have invested, like if it was the nineties and I bought a set of, you know, um, Zeiss super speeds, you know, like series threes, late eighties lenses. And I would have gotten them in PL mount and they would have worked with my five thirty five. They would have worked with my Airy BL. They would have worked with my movie cam super America. And then my movie cam compact. If I kept buying a camera every three or four years, like that open lens mount, let me make better choices. So as a filmmaker, we should have open lens, mount, like lens mounts that are open. So like I get why Nikon and Canon went with their own proprietary mounts, but like, I wish, honestly, it would have been baller if Canon was like, you know what? We're going to do L. They wouldn't. It's not a Canon thing. And I get why Sony stuck with E, but like Blackmagic Red and Sigma, you know, should really take a note and be like, okay, L is this open mount and it's getting support. The lenses are good. They improve the autofocus with this one, which I think is good. They support, and this is actually something that the FP also supported, but we never wrote about it because it wasn't supported with the original, when we did our first review, it supports both ProRes and Blackmagic Raw. And like, sure, if you're just a single owner operator, that doesn't matter because, you know, if, if your camera does ProRes Raw, you'll figure out a workflow. But like, if you're a freelancer, some companies are going to want one, some companies are going to want others, some jobs will fit one. And so the fact that it supports both is good. I wish more camera manufacturers would support both. Um, the QR code thing is really sick. Yeah, that seems cool too. The one bummer is early reviews. And admittedly, all these early reviews are with a pre-production model. Early reviews are that the image, it's a new sensor and it's like a crazy high resolution sensor. It shoots like 9K stills. And apparently right now, the 9K stills, when you downsample them to 4K, don't look amazing right now. So the video quality is not significantly better than the original FP, which is a bummer. 
which means that this is more probably targeted at still shooters, but it doesn't make any sense for still shooters because it's a weird... Still shooters are not obsessed with having the smallest, lightest thing ever because they don't need to put it on gimbals. They don't need to stabilize it. So it doesn't make sense for still shooters and the video quality is not a big leap. There's a bunch of stuff in this that I want other people to be influenced by and maybe the release version of the camera will have slightly better video quality. It remains to be seen. Cool. And then the other thing that's cool that came out this week is Aperture's Accent B7C bulbs. They're shipping in a kit form now. And the B7C bulbs we haven't talked about on the podcast, but they are Edison bulbs, which means the the bottom is like that Edison screw plug that you can screw into the lamp in your apartment. And the reason why I like these is, you know, they're full, they're color mixing LED bulbs that can screw into lamps. And what is great about this is it means you can roll up to a shoot. Yeah, I can already tell what's great about it. Rebulb <laughs> all of the practical lights and then control dimming and color with the um, Aperture Cetus Link app on your phone, which is actually a pretty good app. Like apps are finally getting good. Godox has a good app. Aperture has a good app. The apps are getting better. And it's like, oh, wow, for 800 bucks, you can get an eight light kit. So they're 100 a piece. But the eight light kit is in like a case. The lights have a built-in battery. So obviously most of the time you won't be using the battery, but like maybe you're on a stage and you don't want to have to run power to the lamp or maybe the power cord to the lamp is in shot and it looks ugly and the director's like, hey, can we just pull that power cord real quick? Well, having a 70 minute worth of battery in the B7C is kind of great because then you can just pull the cord but still have that lamp on. Like, you know, it goes from 2000 Kelvin to 10,000 Kelvin color temperature. Yeah, it's like... I don't know. It's super exciting that like for a hundred bucks a piece, we can be in the territory where we're getting like designed for motion picture light units that are ready to do the job we want them to do. Yes. You could get like a Philips Hue bulb for like $30 a piece. I have Philips Hue in my house. Philips Hue is great, but these are going to be brighter than those Philips Hues, which you might need if you're working with a whole lot of light on set for whatever reason. These are going to be more color accurate. They're going to give you more color flexibility than the Hue. Also, Cetus Link is eventually going to interact with DMX. So if you're lighting your whole stage DMX and you want your practicals on the DMX board, you can. there's workarounds to do it with Hue, but it's better. Like This is going to be a better integration. I am super psyched. This seems like such an obviously good thing to have access to, and I'm almost surprised that it doesn't exist already in the forum because yeah, so many times on a smaller shoot, your gaffer DP, everybody will roll up and there will be all kinds of things you want to do with light that you have to just deal with what you've got there. Um, smaller stuff, um, changing out bulbs, being able to change out a practical bulb with something that's just with an led. That's so cool to me at least. Oh yeah. And that it's a hundred dollars a bulb. So an eight like kits, 800 bucks is such a, like a reasonable price point for something that will be so useful on so many shoots. Now what I want, and I hope Aperture does this, but I don't care who does it. Somebody has to do this with like T6 fluorescence. Like I want to be able to go to a shopping, like a supermarket or anywhere really where there's fluorescence. And I want to rebulb them with full RGB LEDs. That is apparently really hard because of most of those light units have ballasts that affects the power. So you have to build the bulb in a certain way that it takes the power that's gone through the ballast because, you know, I'm not going to go into a supermarket. Like usually when you see led bulbs in a supermarket, now they went through and they changed out the fixtures and took out the fluorescent ballasts. 
However, I don't, I'm not going to, you know, no random supermarket that gives me permission to shoot is going to let me rebulb and I don't want to pay the money to do it. So I want a, I want like a four foot T6 bulb that I can just like stick into any random supermarket and it works, but I get full RGB control. I want that so bad. And nobody, nobody makes it. I've even thought about trying to make it myself, but I don't want to learn how to make lights, but I, somebody's got to make that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's never too late to learn. Yeah, I guess maybe I'll learn to make lights. I also promised I was going to learn deep fake tech, so I got a, I got a list. And then our last <laughs> question this week, William Fig, great name, Mr. Fig. What are productions using for remote on-location Wi-Fi? We've been using a hotspot, which I'm assuming is just like a hotspot from a phone, and we need a more robust solution. I liked this question because this is like a problem so many productions have is like you roll up on set and like nine people are going to have laptops out like downloading media but also like now we're starting to like we need to upload that media to frame io and like there's all this stuff that's happening on set that requires internet but if you're out in the woods or you're out in the desert or you're out in a lot of places like what do you do you know what my my oh, answer ahead. is what's your answer I have a real quick one you starbucks just do with do without it <laughs> that's how we used to do it i'm not so old that i was on sets before it existed well, Wi-Fi existed in every set I've ever, every, every time, pretty much, I think. But you don't, you can probably function more without it than you think. Um, but I can, oh. under, I can appreciate, I can appreciate that there are situations where you absolutely cannot, like a few of the ones you just mentioned, where maybe there's somebody who needs to look at something on Frame.io, or maybe there's, there's uh, assets that need to come in or out through, you know, but... I think you'd be surprised how much of a of a thing you can shoot without access to Wi-Fi. I was not. I did not pick this Ask No Film School to get the um, George Edelman old man yells at cloud answer. But I am so happy <laughs> that I picked this one and got the old man yells at cloud answer. Um, yeah. I'm actually gonna I'm actually gonna go against that and say that. Here's the thing, like I, the feature film I directed, we shot in the National Radio Quiet Zone, which like if you haven't been there, it's a wonderful place. Please don't go. It, there's nobody in it and I don't want you to ruin it. But like if you if you can go, it's amazing. It's a 50 square mile zone where there's no cell phones because there can't be because the government won't allow it so that we can use satellites technically to look in space. I mean, we can use antennas to look at space, but also there's like an NSA facility and we spy on foreign governments with it. And it's amazing. There's no cell phones. It's great. Like everybody was on set on time because you can't text running late. And so you actually are there on set and like people were reading <laughs> newspapers on set when they weren't working. It was, it was awesome. The one time someone was late, it was a huge deal. Like it used to be in the nineties. Um, <laughs> I loved it. Being, I, well, late, I, being late is unacceptable when there's no way to contact people. I want to make every movie in the national radio quiet zone. So yeah, there's tremendous stuff you can do without the internet. However, on that movie, the producers were there. I knew them. We were friends. There were no financiers. There were no other stakeholders. We shot the movie. We, we brought the drives back to LA. We transcoded it and we started the edit old school style. However, the world is unfortunately changing and with it, our expectations change. So the same way Sigma giving me the director's viewfinder mode made me want more clients, <laughs> stakeholders want more now. And nice so tie -in. like, the expectation for, you know, like I, I did this job um, or not a job. I did a spec thing in Vietnam a couple of weeks ago. And like I was watching live takes from Vietnam on Q-Take, which was like amazing. I was like, you know, on my phone watching live takes, giving feedback on notes. It was a tabletop thing. It wasn't like acting thing from Vietnam live. 
like so like now i expect that now like there's so much more than there used to be that clients stakeholders other people expect and especially with covid like it used to be the client like we didn't need wi-fi in the 90s because we were in la and say you're working on a car job the client's going to come they're going to stay at shutters they're going to like have a great time in la it's all going to be expensed and they're going to be on set all the time and they're on set off they're only needed about a third of the time, but they want to be able to make the company pay for them to stay at shutters. So they come out for the whole time and like, they're not going to do that anymore because of COVID. So they're going to be sitting in Detroit, but they're going to want to see what the takes are looking like. They're wanting to give notes and feedback. So the demand for it is different now than it used to be both because of COVID and because client expectations have changed. So I'm not going to yell at a cloud. I'm going to say that there are solutions. So Teradek, who makes a wide variety of zero delay wireless video devices. The Teradex Serve is one of my favorites. Like every time I show a new crew member the Teradex Serve, I've had one for three or four years now, and yet I still end up working with new people I haven't worked with it, and I show it to them, and they're like, oh, this is so cool. And it basically lets 10 iPhones on set turn into um, wireless video monitors. It's great. It's addictive. Once you've got started working with Serve, it's really hard to go back. They make a, a nice toy called the Link, it's available in backpack form, Link Pro. And what it'll do is you can insert, like you can go get cards from like Verizon or AT&T or wherever. And so you can like take four different Verizon signals and aggregate them together to one Wi-Fi signal. And then it's like a dedicated Wi-Fi hub. It's not like your phone being a, a hotspot, which is going to overheat and it's beyond the power. It's designed to do this. And so you can have like a backpack that has, it's the equivalent of taking four wireless signals, bonding them together, and then creating like a really nice, robust Wi-Fi network that all nine of the laptops can go on. And the DIT can be uploading stuff to um, Frame.io and sending stuff out over QTake. And, and, you know, the producer can be checking their, their Google Sheet budget and all of that stuff can be happening. And it's a product. It's made by Teradek. Um Every once in a while, we when we used to do videos at NAB, which like I don't know if that will ever happen again, we actually choose, and this is actually something you've dealt with, George, is we choose the hotel I know, for NAB we've based about this. <laughs> on Wi-Fi. So like even, even though you're like old man yelling at a cloud, you make a hotel decision <laughs> because we want to get up all those videos as fast as we can. And so we pick the hotel with the best Wi-Fi in Vegas in order but to get all those. we're not telling our secrets. Yeah, we're not going to tell you which... <laughs> Yes, I'm sure our competitors, whoever they are, listen to this and um, we're not going to tell them which hotel we stay at, but that's why it's picked. And every year I don't, I'm not a big fan of that hotel. So every year I'm like, (laughs) guys, why don't we just ask Teradek to loan us a link for the week? And then we, we can talked get, about the link many times, you and I, and then we could stay in another hotel that doesn't smell like cigarettes. You see, and although they're, although it's Vegas, so, but they yes, mostly they do smell exist. like cigarettes. Yeah. I, I, I knew releasing that, that I might be revealing a trade secret of which hotel we stay in, but <laughs> I don't think it's that's a like trade half secret. the toads. Yeah. I think that information is available to everyone, but I would, <laughs> I mean, if you want to do the digging, it's funny because you brought it up and I was like, I, I immediately started thinking about NAB and why we do that and how important it is. And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, 
totally dependent on what you are shooting and what the demands are, how critical Wi-Fi could be. And well, I, and I forgot to list much... in the stakeholders, like it's not just clients, it's also like fans. Like the people who yeah. watch No Film School's NAB content would like it to appear the day of NAB. They're not expecting to watch no, it. The long, yeah, the, that's a great example of shooting something where it's like delay to getting it up means like what? It's you know, people not seeing it when they care about it and finding out about it some other way. And they want to watch that information. They want to see what's happening on the floor. It would be nice to go back to NAB, wouldn't it? Or to go anywhere, really? But I, I mean, I don't that, expect that to be NAB not... until 2023. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed that one day. Um, but in the meantime, I mean, you could be shooting something where you absolutely need to have access to the internet and it has to be good. And that's why those solutions exist. But you could be shooting something where you don't. And if you're in those circumstances, I I think it's worth considering for a variety of reasons what it would be like to have a set. I just have this fantasy now, and I'm, I'm on an old man cloud rant of sets like, you know how there's these directors who have these weird rules and we all we all we talked about people being jerks or not being jerks on set but here's a good potential being jerk one it's like no internet no phones no wi-fi no like and it's all you know old school i just wonder what to what level i'm not anti people doing stuff on their phones i mean that's how we do so much of our work but i wonder to what extent people dial in differently to the other things they're doing like you know could be interesting to note You've got to do a, a movie in the Radio Quiet Zone. You'd love it. It's great. Uh, highly recommend it. Everyone, it's 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 a really West Virginia man. It's great. All right, uh, I'm gonna plug my pluggables. Uh, you can check me out on the internet at Charles Hain and uh, on Twitter at Charles Hain. I'm gonna be doing a WeFunder soon for for a project. So you're gonna hear me pitching my WeFunder for a while. That's a that's an online platform. So if you're like, oh, that Charles Hain, he does good stuff. You, you should check out WeFunder, which is not even up yet, but I'm like priming you for later in the like hypnosis stage of sales. But I'm telling you I'm doing it. So that makes it nice. maybe less reprehensible. Anyway, charleshane.com. Check it out. I am George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can find all the stories we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast, and send us questions at ask at nofilmschool.com. We love to hear from you. Charles, you mentioned WeFunder. We have written about WeFunder, and we've had other filmmakers through No Film School, through our No Film School community, work with WeFunder. It's really cool. I just want to take the chance to plug it and tell people about it. We have a post that actually this guy, George Edelman, wrote called, Is This the Future of Indie Film Finance? And I just, I think it's awesome. I think more people should look at it as an option. And I'm, I'm very curious to track what you do with it. Awesome. All righty. Well, we will talk more about that in the future episode when I've launched the thing. All righty, folks. I will see everybody next week. Have fun making movies. Mm-hmm.